Welcome back to the Frozen Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. This is a podcast discussing the North American fur trade from around the 1500s to the 1840s. And today we're going to talk about the trader and explorer, Sir Alexander Mackenzie. One of the greatest things this man accomplished wasn't the ridiculously dangerous canoe ride up the Slave River to the Arctic Ocean, or the westward journey on the Peace River, or even the fact that he was the very first white man north of Mexico to cross from the east coast of the continent to reach the west coast. It was the fact that he wrote it all down. And his journals are everything you would hope for in a good novel. They make you laugh and they make you cry. There are heroes and villains, and they make you root for his success as if he were a modern-day protagonist in a wilderness survival thriller. So today we're going to trek through the history of this incredible man and read through his innermost thoughts on the expeditions that opened the western wilderness of Canada. Alexander was born on the Isle of Lewis in Scotland in the year 1762, or 1764, depending on the source. 1762, though, seems to jive with the immigration records. His father was a prominent merchant named Kenneth Mackenzie. He was nicknamed the Cork. Alex's mother was Isabel MacGyver, the daughter of another prominent merchant. In some records, Kenneth Mackenzie is said to be a taxman, T-A-C-K-S-M-A-N which is the Scottish term for a middleman between the rich landowners and the farmers who rented the land. It's more likely, though, that Kenneth's father was the taxman, and that Kenneth devoted his efforts to running his business. And he was good at it. And he taught those business skills to his children. He also enrolled them in the local parish school, where Alex and his brother Murdoch and his sisters Margaret and Sibylla received a great education. Then in 1774, 12-year-old Alex's world turned upside down. His mother died. After years of terrible harvests, declining business, and freezing cold, wet winters, it was more than Kenneth could take. So Kenneth and his brother John moved their families to the colonies in America, landing in New York in 1774. And very soon after, their new country disintegrated into the Revolutionary War. Alex's father and his uncle John joined the fight as lieutenants in the King's Royal Regiment of New York. This British regiment was organized by a man named Sir William Johnson. But being the children of loyalists was dangerous, so Alex and the others were sent to the relative safety of the Mohawk Valley to land owned by their dad's commanding officer. From there, Alex moved to Montreal, where he attended a year of school learning navigation and astronomy, and he was kind of a natural at it. At the age of 17, he started a new job, working as a clerk for a man named John Gregory. Gregory was a partner in a small fur company named Gregory McLeod and Company. And like many small fur companies in this day, his company was getting its butt kicked trying to compete with big dogs like Hudson's Bay Company. So many of those little fur companies banded together to take on Hudson's Bay, forming the Northwest Company. And it was in this environment that Alex would perfect his skills as a businessman and as a navigator. And he discovered that he loved it. 
In fact, he loved it so much, he convinced his cousin Roderick to leave Scotland and come join him. And by 1788, the two cousins were offered positions in an expedition to Lake Athabasca, which is in the northwest corner of Saskatchewan and the northeast corner of Alberta, Canada. Here they were to establish a trading post and promote the fur trade for the Northwest Company. They worked with one of the founders of the Northwest Company, a man named Peter Pond. He was an American fur trader who spent most of his time in Canada, and he reportedly had a very hot temper and a very short fuse. But Peter also had a bit of a problem. He'd been accused of two murders, and since the crime happened outside the jurisdiction of Quebec, he got away with it. But the company tried to mitigate the damage to their reputation, so they removed Peter from his position soon after. And when that job came open, it was Alexander Mackenzie who took it. Now, while Alex and his cousin were learning the ropes from the big names of the fur trade, like Simon McTavish and the Frobisher brothers, it was Peter Pond who piqued Alex's interest in finding the Northwest Coast. Pond had believed that the tributaries in the area all led to the fabled Northwest Passage. And when Alex finally found himself in this new position of leadership, he took up the mantle of proving Pond right. From the day they left, Alexander Mackenzie recorded every detail of the trip, from the weather, to the water depth, to the distance they traveled, to how grumpy his men were. He wrote about the things he saw and the people he met, and while I couldn't possibly read the entire journal to you without making this a 10-part episode, I will give you an idea of one of the passages, and then you'll see why I summarize the rest. Mackenzie writes, We embarked at four this morning and proceeded north-northeast half a mile, north one mile and a half, west two miles, northwest two miles, and so on he goes, detailing every twist and turn of the Slave River. He describes the length and the breadth of the beaches and the embankments, and he gives the distances from one shore to the other. And then he describes what the landscape looks like. He writes, The banks are rather low, except in one place where a huge rock rises above them. The lowland is covered with wood, such as white birch, pines of different kinds, with poplar, three kinds of willow, and on and on he goes. I hope by now you understand why I'm summarizing the rest of the journal. Alex was very gifted in his vocabulary, and extremely detailed in his accounts. And probably one of the most incredible gifts his journal gives us is a look at the indigenous people themselves. He describes their appearances, their homes, their lifestyles, and even their ceremonies. And for white people back east who have never even heard of this place... That was truly amazing. Alex's first expedition was launched in 1789. They left the newly constructed Fort Chippewayan on Lake Athabasca on June 3rd, and they headed up what was then known as the Slave River, named after the slavey Indians in the area. A quick note here, the Indians were not slaves themselves. Slave was a name given to them by other tribes, and it was a kind of derogatory term used to imply that they were the lowest class of people. They were uncouth and barbaric. And this brings us to a quick anthropology lesson. When talking about the various Canadian First Nation peoples, it can sometimes get confusing keeping them all straight 
particularly to white folks from another country. So let's take a quick look at the demographics of Canada's indigenous people. If you were to divide Canada roughly into three parts, each third would be inhabited by a different group. On the eastern one-third of the country, you have the Cree. The term Cree is an umbrella term for this group of people who all speak similar languages. Under that umbrella are the actual tribes, like the Naskapi, and the Woodland Cree, and so on. And within each tribe, there are different bands of family groups. So think of it like this. All ducks are birds, but not all birds are ducks. Birds is the umbrella term, but ducks, pigeons, songbirds, they're under that umbrella. And within the duck family, there are mallards, there are wood ducks, and so on. It's the same concept. Now, in the middle section of Canada live the Anishi Na'abe. That's the umbrella term for the Ottawa, the Salto, the Potawatomi, the Ojibwa, and so on. Within each tribe are various bands, like the Red Knife, the Yellow Knife, the Dog Rib, the Slaveys, the Beavers, and so on. Incidentally, in the U.S., we're taught that the Chippewa are part of that group. But the Ojibwa and the Chippewa are the exact same people. If you listen closely, you can see how the word changed as people repeated it incorrectly, eventually dropping the starting O. Ojibwa. Chippewa. See? Fort Chippewayan, where Alex begins his journey, was named after those people who lived there, the Ojibwa. Now let's look at the people who lived on the farthest reaches of the north and west of Canada, right on into Alaska, right on into Siberia. In school, I was taught they were Eskimos. But if you ask them, Eskimo is a nasty name given to them by those intruding white colonizers. It implied they were vicious, raw, meat-eating barbarians. And what the name likely stemmed from was the French word for someone who makes snowshoes, but still, these tribes don't see themselves as Eskimo. They are the Aleuts, the uh, Inupiats, the Athabascans, the Tlingit, and so on. And they're all grouped together under the umbrella term of Inuit. So for my school-age listeners, while some tribes might refer to themselves as Eskimo, the polite word to use is Inuit. Now, these people are descended from Mongolian ancestry. So they look different. They have paler skin than most natives. Their faces are flatter and rounder, and they speak a very different language. So the Anishinaabe in the middle of the country and the Inuit on the western edges, at least in this point of time, were not friendly with each other. There had been generations of feuding and warfare over the same resources and differences in their cultures. One group looked down on the other, and vice versa. And I explain all of this to you to help you understand why Alexander Mackenzie is about to have his hands really full. Now, back to his story. He left Fort Chippewayan on June 3, 1789. In his large canoe, he had with him four Canadians, two of which were voyagers Joseph Landry and Charles Doucette, one German and two native women, the trade goods, and all their gear. 
His tent alone had a ridge pole that was nine and a half inches in diameter and several feet long. So that gives you an idea of how crowded it must have been. In another canoe was his guide and interpreter, English Chief. English Chief was an Anishinaabe man, likely of the Red Knife Band, who spoke fluent Slaby, Dog Rib, Beaver, Ojibwa, French, and English. He had been working with Hudson's Bay Company for years, even guiding Samuel Hearn on his famous walk across the Arctic, and he was recently contracted by the Northwest Company to act as a fur-trading middleman and a provisioner. He also served as a hunter and an advisor on the customs of the local natives. With English chief in his canoe were two of his wives. In a third canoe were two young native men, one being English chief's younger brother. And these two men were the hunters who supplied the group with fresh food and hunting and fishing. There was a fourth, much larger canoe controlled by a man named Laurent LaRue. LaRue was himself a businessman and a fur trader, and he worked a series of trading posts in the areas for the last few years. So his canoe contained all of the trade goods and provisions that would refill Alex's canoe. During the course of his journey to find the Pacific Ocean, Alexander Mackenzie writes of days with little to no food. They suffered through torrential downpours and freezing winds. At times, the river was frozen solid, and others, it was so choked with ice that they couldn't find a safe passage through. Fierce winds were blowing the ice flows into their birch bark canoes, threatening to tear them wide open. Sometimes the winds kicked up so furiously that the swells of water threatened to swamp the boats, and they had to bail frantically with kettles to keep afloat. There were times that the fog blew in so quickly and so thick that they were forced to find shore immediately, for fear they'd had a waterfall unprepared, or an ice flow that would tear apart the bark coverings on their canoes. And remember, this was the era before accurate topographical maps. So to get any vantage point to see what was coming downriver, they had to get out, climb a mountain, and see what they could see, then climb back down, get back in the canoe, and proceed. That was an exhausting way to see what lied ahead. It seems their two choices of weather were either freezing cold and wet, or hot and embattled by swarms of mosquitoes and gnats. As they progressed on their journey, they would stop at each village they came across and offer gifts. This was beaver country, and the whole purpose of this trip was to drum up business from the locals and convince them to bring pelts into the trading posts. So Mackenzie was as much on a mission of goodwill and networking as he was exploring. When they came to a village, the interpreter, English chief, would ask the locals about the river ahead. He would ask about any dangers to watch for, and he would explain that Mackenzie offered trade goods for the employment of one of their tribesmen to go with them as a guide. Each tribe told the same story. Terrible rapids and warring Inuit bands who would kill a man as soon as look at them. In fact, the Inuit were said to be mean, ugly people who ate their own children and wouldn't think twice about attacking these skinny white men. The Anishinaabe would tell of the scarcity of food and the ferocity of the weather. And Mackenzie would offer his goods, and one of the villagers would join the party. More often than not, however, 
the local guide would accept the position and then chicken out and refuse to go. When that happened, the Canadians would force the poor man into the canoe against his will. These locals were afraid they'd never get back home. What if the white man didn't come back the same way? Or worse, what if they got eaten by the Inuit up north? It was an absolutely terrifying experience for these indigenous people. Considering most of these natives had never seen a white man before and had never heard the crack of a rifle shot, they were seriously scared to just up and go with these alien people. On more than one occasion, the people scattered when a rifle went off and the explorers couldn't get them to come back. Usually, gifts of beads and iron, cloth and food convinced the locals they meant no harm. And some of the villagers even followed them or paddled ahead to ensure others that the white men were not dangerous. At one point on July 8, 1789, they stopped at a slave tribe village to trade and to ask for directions. Alex took great pains to describe them in his journal. He said they were dirty and unkempt, and they wore thick reindeer hide shirts that hung down to their thighs, and thigh-high leggings that were sewn directly to their moccasins. They wore no undergarments, save for a tassel of leather tied to a cord around their waist. This apparently was to keep the flies off their nether regions. Now, it's at this village that Mackenzie employed one of the locals to act as a guide. But the man was so freaked out, he had to be watched closely so he didn't launch himself over the gunwale and swim back home. By the time they got to the next village, the village of the Hare Tribe, that guide was so twitchy and close to mentally breaking that they actually traded him for one of the Hare members. On July 9th, the next day, that Hare guide disappeared and they had to get a new guide. After accepting the payment, the new guide also tried to chicken out, and they had to force him into service. Refusing to get in the canoe with these strangers, he took his own small canoe, and he paddled well away from them on the side. But after a while, he warmed up to the white men. He pulled up beside them, and he jumps into their canoe. And I mean, he jumped into their canoe. In fact, he was so at ease, the man then proceeded to stand up and perform a hopping, spinning dance of his people, complete with lewd hip gyrations and extremely offensive arm motions, which scared the daylights out of everyone else in the boat. Fearing the man would flip the canoe, he was eventually convinced to sit down and behave. Over the next few days, Alexander marvels that the sun was still up well after midnight. He writes in admiration at one of the villages at a, a huge square stone kettle carved completely out of one solid piece of rock. He describes two huge unidentifiable animal skulls and many bones that were foreign to his crew. He believed them to be that of the seahorse. Remember, he was Scottish, and Kelpies, or water horses, are a very big part of their lore. The following day, on July 10, 1789, he opined in his journal that he was certain they were headed in the wrong direction. He thought they were headed towards the Arctic Ocean and not the Pacific. So his mood was already kind of glum. That day they passed a grave by which a bow, a paddle, and a spear lay in silent tribute to their owner's lost life. 
the already somber mood of Alex McKenzie and his crew darkened. But their spirits were soon lifted when they neared the mouth of the Slave River, and several whales, as large as the canoe they were in, swam past. It was then that Alex knew his suspicions were true. Entering this wide expanse of icy seawater, the weather quickly became treacherous. One minute it was clear and cold. The next, extreme winds blew them out of the bay and towards massive ice flows. They were forced to quickly hoist a sail and speed for the nearest shore. As the swells grew so large, they threatened to swamp the canoe. They made camp on the shore, and that night, the tide rose 18 inches and soaked into all their baggage while they slept. Alex was awakened by the sound of water lapping, and he managed to save their gear, but their pemmican had become saturated, and by morning it was beginning to mold. They were forced to eat that moldy pemmican for the next several days, because hunting and fishing produced nothing. By the end of the week, the guide had disappeared into the night, and the explorers turned to head back upriver. But the currents worked so hard against them, they were often forced to tow the canoes with a rope as they walked along the shore. When they could, they used the strong winds to tack across the river. For anyone who isn't familiar with sailing, when you're going in the same direction as the wind, it fills the sail and it pushes you along. And you move quickly. But if your destination is against the wind, and the wind is blowing directly in your face, you have to turn the boat at an angle and go in a sort of zigzag motion to get there. That's called tacking, and it adds a lot of time to your trip. Now, remember that generations-long feud between the Inuit and the Anishinaabeg? This is where that comes into play. English chief, the interpreter, was Anishinaabe, and probably from the Red Knife Band. The Red Knife people not only had issues with the Inuit, but they looked down on certain other tribes. And one of those tribes was the Duguthi Dinis. At the first village the Mackenzie group came to, the Dinis ran away in fear, and the English chief proceeded to ransack their village and put all their stuff in his canoe. And this happened again and again at each of these villages they, they stopped at on the way home. To avoid future confrontations and a seriously bad reputation, Mackenzie was forced to leave trade goods as payment every time one of his native crew members made off with someone else's stuff. That can get expensive when your trade goods are quickly depleting. It also added to Mackenzie's frustrations. Alexander Mackenzie made this journey to find the route to the Pacific Ocean, and instead he put in all this effort and all he found was the lousy Arctic Ocean. So he began to rethink his strategy. He explained to his crew that he was going to start asking locals about westerly flowing waterways that might take him towards the Pacific. His native crew members, though, wanted to go home, and they started fussing about being cold and hungry and homesick. And it became a week-long, whiny, are-we-there-yet moment. Alex began to wonder if they would desert him. So we placated them as much as possible with encouraging words, trade good bribes, and alcohol. A few days later, on July 25th, a storm blew up with hurricane-force winds, and it came on suddenly as the men were trying to set up camp. 
The nine-and-a-half-inch thick ridge pole of Mackenzie's tent was split in half, with splinters flying everywhere. The men were forced to hit the deck and cover their heads as a wall of stones was hurled from the shore and into their faces and bodies. But that was just the beginning of Mackenzie's frustrations. It seems one of those guides who had slipped away in the night had traveled ahead of them, telling everyone his terrifying story about being taken captive by these crazy white men. So on the way back up the river, the locals that were found had developed a sudden case of amnesia, not remembering anything about the surrounding area. Or they feigned sickness, being unable to leave their beds until the crew assured them they would not be kidnapped. And then the natives were just fine. So Mackenzie saw through the ruse, and it made him angry. English chief also began to act suspicious, and Mackenzie wasn't sure he was translating properly or asking the questions he wanted asked. When Mackenzie would ask for information on westerly flowing waters, English chief suddenly had difficulties with the language, or would listen to the locals speak for some really long time before looking at Alex and simply saying, he doesn't know anything. On July 28th, three days after that windstorm, another hurricane-force wind blew down the tents and attempted to carry off the beach canoes. It soaked everyone to their skin. And as the winds blew across them, it carried with them a frigid ice storm that forced them to wear every piece of wet clothing they owned just to stay alive. Only three days later, the water grew hot and stifling and humid. The water levels dropped so much that the canoes were dragging bottom and the fishing died off completely. Much of the trek was now spent walking, towing the now empty and much lighter canoes by a rope, plus climbing surrounding mountains carrying all that gear to get a view of the westerly flowing water. Moccasins were wearing out within a few days from the amount of wear and tear that they were suffering, and the four women were employed to the task of constantly making moose skin moccasins to replace the worn-out ones. Many of the villages were now either completely empty or occupied only by those too old to run away. And of those, English chief seemed hesitant to ask any questions for fear that it would produce intelligence that would delay his trip home. Many of the villages had fires burning, food in various stages of preparation, but no people were to be found. As his frustrations grew, Alex decided to climb one of the mountains to get a better view, looking for that westerly flowing water. After hours of making the ascent, he neared the top and found that he and his young native associate came to face a vast marshland. Not wanting to lose the daylight or all the effort they had just exerted climbing the mountain, the two men began to wade into the marsh. Alex suddenly dropped into the water up to his armpits. After being fished out, he sullenly tromped back down the mountain to his canoe, completely dejected. It's at this point that Alex begins to seriously doubt his native companions. They were talking about deserting, and one of his Canadian voyagers had picked up enough of the language to know what they were saying. As if this wasn't heavy enough on his mind, he had sent the two younger natives ahead to explain to the locals that the group came in peace and to please, please, pretty please stick around long enough to answer his questions. When he arrived at the next village, 
he found that the village had been abandoned, and his two young native companions were ransacking all their belongings. And he flipped his lid. The worst of his anger was directed at English Chief, who Alex accused of incorrectly interpreting his words and deliberately trying to thwart his efforts. English Chief burst into tears and vowed he would go no further. The two young natives, having now divvied up the spoils, flopped down on the beach and started crying, saying they'd go no further. The four women sat in the beach canoes, sobbing dramatically, refusing to forage to supplement their dwindling food supplies, saying they missed their families and they weren't going to go any farther. And Alex was forced to walk away. After several hours, he had calmed sufficiently to realize that without these natives, he wasn't going to make it back. So he invited English chief to sit and eat with him. Then he plied the man liberally with whatever food, alcohol, and trade goods he had left. And after probably more than a few swigs for himself, Alex and everyone else calmed down. English chief agreed to stay. The young men agreed to stay, and the women agreed to go foraging. Within the week, Mackenzie noticed that the canoes and the wooden paddles were starting to corrode. They stopped to make repairs and the carve new paddles, and they found evidence of an Inuit war party, which may explain why all the local villages had been abandoned, though Alex was pretty sure word was spreading about his taking of locals as guides. On the 23rd of August, a storm hit while they were in open waters, threatening once more to swamp the boats. The canoes became separated in the gale winds, and everyone had to build their own canoe to try to keep afloat. The following day, Alex's canoe finally met up with his fellow explorer, Laurent LaRue, who had separated from them to go trading some days back. Remember, LaRue was manning the boat that had most of the provisions. So now they had food again. Eventually, the two young natives and English chief caught up to Mackenzie, complaining they'd almost drowned and calling him all sorts of nasty names. The next day, hurricane-force winds struck again, and for two days, the party struggled through it on the shore. English chief and his wives went hunting and foraging, but they ran into trouble and their canoe and all of their possessions were completely destroyed. Once again, the interpreter refused to go on and had to be bribed with Mackenzie's own personal belongings. Within the week, the flag of the fort came into view as a snowstorm struck, burying them all in feet of snow. It was September of 1789 and 102 days from the start of their voyage. The Slave River is 1,081 miles of treacherous, dangerous water, and it was later renamed the Mackenzie River in honor of that voyage he just made. When he met up with his cousin Roderick again later, Alex said it should have been named the River of Disappointment. His frustrations at his junky equipment and his lack of knowledge compelled him to return to England to study the latest in navigational skills and to buy the latest new gear. But I'm sure he stood at Fort Chippewyan before he left, looking westward through that blowing snow. And as the ice collected on his long red hair, I envisioned him vowing to return. Well, Alex returned to Canada in 1792. Now he's better educated and he's better prepared. When his newly organized party left Fort Chippewyan on 
Wednesday, October 10th, he must have felt he could take on the world. In three canoes, he carried hundreds of pounds of trade goods and provisions, six voyagers, including Joseph Landry and Charles Doucette, who had accompanied him before, two native guys, and one very large dog. This dog was a Newfoundland, sweet in temperament, and as loyal to Mackenzie as any of the men. His name was never recorded. He's only ever referred to as Our Dog. So, traveling up the Pine River to the Peace River, the voyagers reached the camp of Mackenzie's old acquaintance, James Finley. Finley was once partnered with Mackenzie's old boss, John Gregory. So, it was a grand reunion when the mountain men at the camp saw the Mackenzie crew pull up. That, and they knew these men had brought provisions and rum to the party. Mackenzie's plan was to proceed to this location and build Fort Fork, F-O-R-K, where he and his crew would spend the winter before moving towards the Pacific Ocean after the spring thaw. The speed with which the cold took over the area made Alex really glad they stayed put. By the 27th of October, only 17 days after the start of their journey, it was so bitterly cold that the axes were shattering as if they were made of glass. And Alex the Explorer suddenly found himself Alex the Physician, though he had absolutely no professional training whatsoever. It didn't stop him from trying, though. He had to treat a native woman who nicked herself with a sharp flint and required a salve. Using his limited knowledge of plants, he successfully created one. He had a, a man who experienced a hot red stripe half an inch wide growing up his arm. By the end of the day, the man was fevering, suffering from chills, and becoming delusional. Not knowing what else to do, he opened the man's vein, and he drained the poison out. And it worked. The man recovered a few days later. Alex even amputated the remains of one worker's thumb after it was half blown off in a gun accident. As the winter dragged on, the men settled into the routine of what winter in the wilderness would be like, creating the crafts that they would need for the spring journey. Alexander Mackenzie took the opportunity to get to know the waters of the Peace River. And he remarked that if the wind blew in from the southwest for four hours or more, the river ice would thaw. And he noticed that if it blew in from the northeast, it would be followed by hours of sleet and snow. This led him to surmise that the warm waters of the Pacific Ocean were blowing in from the southwest, and that it can't possibly be that far away, because the air would have cooled by the time it got to him, if it was. Something else that we gain from these boring months at winter camp is knowledge of the natives. He remarks that many of the local tribes were polygamous, and they treated their women as little more than cattle. He also described how a woman in the throes of childbirth would drop off the trail into the brush to deliver her child alone, then catch up with the rest of the group when they stopped to rest for the evening, assuming she survived. And he tells of how the men whiled away the long dark hours at Fort Fork. He tells of a game named Platter, in which a dish or a plate or platter is held in front of you and contains six round or square game pieces. They could be made of stone, metal, or wood. Each game piece is two-sided, with one side of each piece being one color and the other 
being another color. The platter is shaken or used to toss the pieces in the air. And the pieces land back in the platter, the colors get tallied up. If the resulting count was a two or a four, you lost, and the platter was passed to the next person. On February 2nd, Alexander Mackenzie tells us that it froze so hard outside, and the fort's internal temperatures dropped so badly, his watch froze to a stop. Between early February and mid-March, the inhabitants of his fort were starving and freezing to death. Hunters returned empty-handed, and even the four-legged predators around camp were feeling the effects of this brutal winter. A wolf had become so desperate, it tried to snatch a child from inside the fort's palisade. Sometime in mid-March, tempers grew short, and the two men fought over one of the native women. In the wee hours of the morning, one man murdered the other, then fled from the fort. Unfortunately, they were both guys who hunted for food, and Alex was now short two hunters. He put the rest of the crew to work building a new canoe, and by April, this butte was complete. She was a 25-foot-long birch bark vessel, 4 foot 9 inches in the beam, and 26 inches in the hold. She had a shallow draft, but she could hold an immense amount of weight. And empty, she was so light that two men could carry her on their shoulders for miles without tiring. By May 8, 1793, the voyagers had assembled the supplies, the trade goods, the furniture, the food, the provisions, the tents, the guns, the ammo, the personal effects, and all of Alex's surveying equipment and journals, and they were ready to load up. As the sun broke on May 9th, this massive canoe left shore containing ten men, all of their kit, and, and our dog. The total weight, just over 3,000 pounds. Eight miles downstream, they had to stop and unload it all. Too much weight had strained the seams so badly that it began leaking at an alarming rate. So they hauled up on shore to gum the canoe. For those not familiar, this means that the canoe is emptied, it's flipped upside down, and melted or softened spruce gum is globbed into the holes and the seams and the weak spots, and it's allowed to harden. It takes a ridiculous amount of time to do a regular-sized canoe, so I can imagine it took hours to do a 25-footer. Finally, on the evening of the 9th, the party was again underway, and about a mile and a half downstream, Alex leaned over and accidentally dropped his pocket compass over the side, never to be seen again. Two days later, Alexander Mackenzie was at wit's end trying to keep water out of the canoe. The men were griping, and Alex's nerves were fraying, so they stopped at the village of a beaver tribe, where the heavier goods were taken out of the canoe, and either traded or cashed to lighten the load. The crew members then went to visit and party with the locals, but Alex feared they wouldn't get back in the canoe, so he refused to visit. He sat in the canoe all night until it was time to leave. When they finally got back to paddling, accompanied by now a new local guide from that tribe, the other tribe members were joyfully running along the shore at the side of the canoe, shouting well wishes to their new friends. 
The men in the boat were shouting in return, and they were watching these antics on shore and not paying attention. They ran the canoe onto a stony flat, damaging the already questionable hull. And so they pulled over again. They set up camp and repaired the canoe. Again. The chief came to stay with Alex at his camp, as the rest of the men happily returned to their friends of the village. And as the chief was recently out of tobacco and alcohol, Alex was his new bestest buddy. In fact, he asked Alex repeatedly to borrow the canoe because it was large enough to transport his whole family at one time in moving the village. And Alex repeatedly said no, but the chief persisted rather aggressively. Finally, thinking quick on his feet, Alex told him that no woman could ride in the canoe, as it would curse their voyage, and that the chief understood. Much to Alexander's relief, the men returned early the next morning, well-rested and ready to proceed. The man who had volunteered to act as a guide had somehow mysteriously vanished in the night, so another man stepped up to take his place, and Mackenzie writes, he did not possess any necessary qualifications, but they took him anyways, and finally the party was off. Every day, the crew fought to keep the canoe well-gummed so that the water stayed on the outside. On the 17th, as the Rocky Mountains came into view, they experienced their first major problem. Alex's cousin was hunting buffalo when the muzzle of his gun exploded. Thankfully, he escaped with only minor injuries, but that meant now they were down a rifle. The following day, a, a seam burst in the canoe, and water began to flood in. They had to paddle like madmen to get to the shore before it swamped completely. It took two days to make the repairs, and they had no fresh meat. So they sent the Newfoundland to run down dinner, and he actually returned toting a buffalo calf. While they waited for the gum to dry, Alex took stock of the situation on the river. The water was dangerously shallow, with a very swift-flowing waterfall in their path. The weight of all their possessions, and the men, would likely set the canoe firmly on the bottom, with no hope of it moving anywhere. So Alex calculated that they would have to unload the canoe, transport the heaviest stuff on their backs, and tow the light canoe down through the shallows on a rope. Once past the waterfall and into deeper water, they could reload and continue on. This is called a portage, or portage, if you're an American. So the men lightened the load and walked on the shore, towing the canoe beside them. The crew came to their first major hurdle, though, a waterfall. Footing on the side of the falls was sketchy at best, so they were forced to tow the canoe all the way back to where they had just come from cross over to the other side of the river and attempt the crossing from that side. Meanwhile, Alex had climbed to the top of some nearby hills to get a better vantage point. And from this new height, he could see the dangers that the men below could not. And as the men placed all their gear back into the boat, Alex could see that the canoe was too heavily loaded to make the fall safely. He could also see that the men had poor footing ahead, and could potentially fall to their deaths. So he stood there, jumping up and down, screaming for them to lighten the load in the canoe. Over the sound of the raging waterfall, the men couldn't hear him. Alex bolted back down the falls, screaming like a raving lunatic the whole way. 
By the time he got to his men on the other side of the falls, he was suffering from serious anxiety and only calmed himself when his head count revealed that everyone was still alive. And so was our dog. Unfortunately, the canoe had been broken, and it required serious repairs, but his men had already started working on it without him. At the next waterfall, they all agreed not to do that again. Deciding that the best way was to carry the canoe past the raging waters, they began to look for a safe path that they could walk. There was none. The canyon walls were so steep, their only hope was to scale the face of the walls. So they carved steps into the wall, and each man stepped out onto one of those little shelves. And then they handed the equipment up, and then the canoe, like a bucket brigade, passing it from one man's shoulders to the next. Unfortunately, the already weak joints in the canoe broke once more as a result of it flexing as it was passed along. But the damage was repaired quickly, and the canoe was regummed. And by the 20th, they were feeling pretty good about themselves. Shortly after embarking again, they found themselves forced to portage once more. And by the time the exhausted crew made it over land and back to shore, the waters had calmed considerably. The men dropped to the beach and lay panting and sweating. And a shift in the current gently lifted the canoe from the beach and jerked it suddenly into the middle of the river. It just so happened that one of those exhausted men had the rope still wrapped around his wrist, and his body weight is the only thing that saved the canoe. Over the next two miles, the men were forced to unload and tow the empty canoe four times, each time carrying all of those contents on their backs. When they came to a rapids that seemed easier to deal with, Two men re-entered the canoe to help steer it through the rocks as the rest of the men towed it along. A giant wave struck the bow and broke the rope. Alex and the others watched in horror as the giant canoe bounced from one rock to another as it careened wildly through the rapids. It was eventually spun in circles into calmer waters where the two men successfully paddled it to shore. Had those two men not been in the boat as had been the case so many times before, the canoe and all their provisions would have slipped away, either to be destroyed on the falls or sunk irretrievably. Besides the horrific near-death experiences, the landscape became so uninviting that the men began to seriously grumble. Great chasms emitted smoke and heat, and the smell of sulfur belched out of cracks and crevices in the cliffs. They equated it to the landscape of Hades. By the 22nd of May, 1793, the men had come to a point in the river where scouts reported ten and a half miles of impassable waterfalls. Their only course of action was to carry the canoe and all their belongings up and over the mountains to calmer waters beyond the falls. But first they had to get themselves and the canoe up the sheer cliff face to the top. So two men free-climbed the face, then pulled up most of the others. The men left below tied on each of the pieces of equipment and then the canoe, and the whole kit and caboodle was hauled up the cliff face. The remaining men, and one dog, were then hauled up last. And what they saw made them grumble even harder. 
solid forest for as far as they could see. A road wide enough to allow the passage of the canoe would have to be cut up and over the mountain. The first night, the men cut in one mile of road before they passed out. They cut three miles in the next day and four miles the next, and this brought them to within a hundred yards above the biggest waterfall. In Alex's journal, he equates the size and volume to the massive waterfall in Niagara, New York. The higher elevation meant that they were well into the thin air of the mountains, with snow on all sides and freezing cold conditions. We're told that despite wearing many layers and capotes, the men were still shivering. The men resumed their journey by canoe on the 27th of May, but a boulder fell from the rock face and nearly squished one of their crew who had stopped on shore to retrieve a stag that he had shot for dinner. For the next two days, they faced even more rapids and more portages. Then on the 29th, a series of violent storms struck, making the waters way too dangerous to navigate. So Alex spent his day writing an abridged version of their journey, and he sent it downstream in an empty rum keg, just like a note in a bottle. The next morning, the men were up before sunrise and carrying their gear through yet another portage, when our dog started running back and forth, howling and carrying on behind them. A wolf was following them, trying to get their food supplies. On the morning of the 31st, they just wanted to get back in the canoe. Carrying everything had gotten old, and they were ready to get back to sitting and paddling. But the torrential rains had raised the water levels and increased the speed of the current so much that they found themselves constantly fighting to control the canoe. The temperatures also dropped rapidly, and by dusk the men were half frozen and completely exhausted, so Alex camped and built a fire. The men figured they had to be nearing the end of the mountains, and they were completely disgusted when they crested the mountain and saw one more chain after another after another. For the next week, it was more of the same, fighting currents, road building, and portaging, making only two to three miles of progress a day, starving and freezing. Another point of misery here is that Alexander Mackenzie's book of course descriptions and compass points and navigational notes was at some point knocked out of his pocket on June 4th and lost to the depths of the river. Then on June 5th, the men awoke to find the canoe, the equipment, and all the bags floating in the water. Everything had been secured well on land the night before. But the river upstream had swelled with the influx of meltwater and storm drainage and had flooded over its banks. In fact, Alex marvels that they actually were canoeing over land through the trees. The journey continued on, however, and the next week was filled with thunderstorms and canoe leaks and freezing conditions and rum, lots of rum. Then came the fateful day of June 13th. That Thursday morning, the scouts returned with a report that there were blockages in rapids for several miles. 
Up to now, Alex had often alternated the men in walking beside the river and paddling in the canoe, to keep the load lighter, to avoid overstressing the leaky boat, and to give them a change of scenery and a chance to stretch cramped legs. Alex decided to take the first walking turn, and his men began to loudly convey their apprehensions about taking this terrible canoe any further. They basically said, if we're going to die in this boat, so are you. Get in. So Alex had no choice but to reboard. Soon after, the canoe was swept sideways into a huge rock, and the men were dumped into the icy waters. Almost all of them managed to launch themselves back into the boat immediately, but one man was swept sideways and was forced towards the shore. The crew members had no sooner regained their seats, and they were grappling for oars when the canoe spun wildly, shattering the stern against an outcropping. The boat heaved one way, then the other, and the bow split open as it careened into another rock. One man tried to grab at the branches of an overhanging tree to stop their crazy descent. But the tree sprung backwards. The man was flung through the air to land in a crumpled heap on the farthest shore. As the boat hurtled downstream uncontrolled, it bounced off rocks, blowing holes in the hull. By the time the battered canoe came to rest, it was submerged fully, and the contents that could float now did so. The remaining men scrambled to gather what they could save as the icy water quickly sapped the feeling from their limbs. Before long, the party had reunited on shore, and a fire was built to try to stave off hypothermia. The man who swam to the opposite shore and the man flung out of the canoe also joined the party, greatly bruised and very numb from cold and fatigue. The two Indians and the local guide sat at the fireside and cried. But a general sense of relief passed over Alex's crewmen. Since the canoe was now gone, that meant they could go home. Alex let them spend the day getting warm and dry. He fed them well and he plied them heavily with alcohol. When their spirits were markedly improved, he gave what was probably the motivational speech of his life. By the end of it, they all agreed that the canoe would be rebuilt, and that they would follow him to the ends of the earth. All except the guide, that is. And Alex had to start watching him day and night to keep him from running off. What little knowledge the ill-prepared guide had of the surrounding area now dissipated into a fog of amnesia and hysterics. Alex comments in his journal that one other near-death experience happened at this point. They had spread their gunpowder out to dry. While they had lost all their ammo, almost all the furniture, and a very good portion of their provisions, the gunpowder had gotten wet, but it was still salvageable. One of the voyagers wasn't paying attention and walked into the piles of gunpowder with a lit pipe, nearly blowing himself to smithereens. The remains of the canoe were drug out of the water, and this poor thing was patched back together as best as it could be. And feeling renewed now, the men were up before the sun and cutting a new road to portage the franken canoe past the new hazards. When they finally were able to re-embark, they paddled for 14 hours and made three miles. It was at this point that on the 15th of June, 
that one of the voyagers, a man named Beauchamp, refused to get back in the boats. He basically said, yep, I'm out, I'm walking home. And it took a great deal of bribery and motivational words to get Beauchamp back in the canoe. The next day, a rock blew a brand new hole in the bottom of the boat, and they were forced to carry it over the road to the next camp before again making repairs. Here's a quick explanation of what's been happening with this canoe. It started out as a 25-foot birch bark canoe, which is very light, and it's easily sealed with tree gum. But as this journey has gone on, they've had to patch it over and over again. In some cases, they've had to sew big panels over the damaged ones. Some of those patches are made of birch bark, and they're very lightweight. But more often than not, they're made of whatever tree material they could find at the time. Heavier woods would make the canoe heavier to carry. And while a little glob of resin might not weigh much, coating the entire boat repeatedly adds a considerable amount of weight. And when they keep patching and regumming and patching and regumming, they keep making it heavier and heavier. It got so heavy, in fact, that four men struggled to carry it even a short distance, even when it was completely empty. Remember at the beginning how two guys could carry it for miles without getting tired? So these poor exhausted guys are now trying to repair the latest hole in the bottom of the canoe when the dog falls into the water and gets swept away. He gets tangled up in a pile of driftwood, nearly drowning. In fact, one of the men had to swim out and save him and nearly drowned himself. After the repairs were complete, they actually made it another two miles before nightfall. But the guide was now under 24-hour surveillance, and one night when one of those exhausted guards fell asleep, the guide disappeared into the night. After a few stormy days, the crew again came to a point of impasse. They were forced to cut a road in to carry the canoe. It took them four hours to cut one half mile of path. When they finally got back to the water, they found the canoe difficult to maneuver. Lopsided patch jobs and sections that were more gum than birch bark made it impossible to handle. They knew they were going to have to build a new one soon. They emptied it out to execute a portage, but the men didn't want to carry the hopeless canoe any further. These were voyagers, after all. They chose to shoot the rapids. So two men took the canoe out into the current and began to approach the rapids. The canoe was drawn into an eddy, a whirlpool, and it cracked, dumping the men into the swirling vortex. They nearly drowned before they were finally able to drag themselves out of the whirlpool and drag themselves to shore. Now, three hours and lots of patching and gum later, the canoe was back in the water and carrying onward, although it said it leaked like a sieve. The men began cashing extra supplies, partially to lighten the load and partially to ensure that they had enough supplies to make it back on. They began to see more indigenous people, and from the intel they were getting, white people like them had been seen building houses on the mouth of the Peace River, the one they now traveled on. That intel was bought with trinkets and trade goods, and so far, the once fearful natives seemed to be coming around. Then word reached them that the natives upriver were planning an attack. This set the voyagers 
nerves on edge, and every sound and odd smell on the wind made their hackles stand up. During the last two, three weeks of June, they collected the materials required to build a new boat, and by the last few days in June, construction was underway. On the evening of July 1st, the finishing touches were applied. Alexander's journal tells us that the new canoe was better and more sturdier than the old one, and he celebrated to himself that his men had worked so diligently on it. Alex was so pleased with his men, he gave them his rum and the rest of the day off to enjoy it. The following morning, as the sun rose over the new vessel on her maiden voyage, the voyagers smiled to themselves as they paddled out into the middle of the river in this beautiful boat. And the steersman, who was not paying attention, ran her straight into the rock, blowing a hole in the bottom. They had to lay up for hours to make repairs, and I can only imagine the dirty looks that Alec gave his sternsman. Later that day, they came to the place where the canoe would be left behind as the men took to the mountain trails following the local guides. Each man carried 70 to 90 pounds, plus their weapons, plus their ammo that they had left. Besides Alex's 90 pounds share of gear, he carried his telescope tube slung over one shoulder, his journals, and the rest of his navigational equipment. And as he walked, he watched the behavior of the two guides. Fearing that they might desert his party in the night, he convinced one of them to sleep in the same sleeping blanket with him. It turns out the guy was heavily infested with a vermin, and he reeked of old greasy fish, but Alex says that his fatigue caused him to go nose-blind very quickly. By mid-July, the men had traversed the last mountain, and they were at the summit, looking down. Gale force winds now added to their misery as swirling snow blinded them, and they were forced to subsist on dried fish marinated in a nasty, stinking oil. On the 18th of July, 1793, they rented two canoes from friendly locals, and two local guides joined their party for a brief time. Alex makes note that the voyagers and his party were in awe of the incredible canoe skills these natives displayed. And the voyagers were the experts of the day. For them to be impressed was saying something. So the next day, as the crew began to shove off, the Newfoundland ran barking headlong into the woods. And they called, and they searched, and they called again. And eventually, they figured he'd catch up. Alex was more than a little upset at the loss of their companion. But they had to continue. And finally, on Saturday, July 20th, 1793, they paddled their leaky canoe into the small bay that led to the Pacific Ocean. 1,200 miles and 71 days since they left Fort Fork, and more than nine months since they left Fort Chippewan. Unfortunately, they didn't really get the opportunity to celebrate their achievement because they were almost instantly confronted by a canoe full of natives that were really aggressive. Their leader, in quotes, of this band had been shot by white men in the past, and he made it his personal life goal to harass any whites that he saw. And this guy was the very definition of extra. He forces himself into Alex's canoe, and he ordered that they take him to his village. Afraid that they'd be walking into a trap, 
The Voyagers instead landed on a massive rock in the middle of the bay so as to be better able to defend themselves. They had no sooner landed when the rest of the aggressive natives came back, and they started rifling through the men's gear. They stole Alex's hat and a handkerchief and some of the trade goods. And then the natives picked up their rock-bound leader and disappeared into the night. And as the night wore on, the tide came in 15 inches and reduced the amount of rock surface the men had to a bare minimum. They spent a very apprehensive night camped, if you want to call it that, on this rock with two-hour rotating shifts of guard duty. When the dawn came, a friendly native came and warned them to get out of town because the extra fellow was planning an attack. While the rest of the crew descended into panic mood, Alex downplayed it. Instead of bolting, he loaded his crew up calmly and went to shore in a place that we today call Bella Coola. There he putzed around, mixing a red paint of bear grease and vermilion, and set himself down to paint the rock that today bears the inscription, Alex Mackenzie from Canada, by land, 22nd July, 1793. This was painted, and not carved as some believe, but later surveyors saw that the paint was fading, and they carved it in so it wouldn't be lost in time. Alex then hashed a plan. He wanted his hat back. So he and his men armed themselves to the teeth, marched up to the door of that annoying leader, and then demanded their goods back, and the natives were so caught off guard, they handed everything back. Not wanting to tempt fate, Alex ordered his crew to start loading up for their long descent home. One of the natives in his crew had fallen ill during that rough night on the rock, and he was out of commission. Alex loaded him into the canoe himself, and he told the rest of the crew to get in, and they refused. I don't think any of us can really blame them. Only one man, Alex's cousin Alexander McKay, agreed to get in the boat. The rest said they'd walk home. In his journal, he refers to these rebels as the pedestrian party. So Alex and his cousin paddled the sick man back while the pedestrian party is walking along shore. On the trip back, the dog was rediscovered at one of the previous stops, emaciated and howling, and apparently he had annoyed the villagers for a week. It took him a bit to get over his master's betrayal, but eventually, with a little food bribery, Everyone in the party was thankful for their reunion, especially the dog. The trip home was less eventful than their descent, with the men digging up their caches of pemmican and supplies as they went. Only once did they actually hit a rock and damage the canoe that required repairs. But something else is starting to show up in his journals. Alex is starting to suffer from swelling in his ankles and calves. By mid-August, the swelling had become so great that on one of those portages on the way back, he had to be carried like a child across the river, much to his embarrassment. Another thing of note that Alex remarked in his journal is that a wildfire had burned through the area and completely changed the landscape. So that, in combination with the fact that he had lost his book with the maps and courses in it, meant they had to retrace their steps on the portages very carefully. On August 24, 1793, 
Coming into view of Fort Chippewayan caused a great excitement to sweep over the men. With a renewed ambition, these exhausted voyagers now pushed themselves to the very limit of breaking as they paddled like madmen to the fort. In fact, they arrived at such great speed and with such force that they beached the canoe half out of the water and shocked the bejesus out of everybody who was standing around the fort. And the people could only stand and watch in astonishment as the men flung themselves out of the canoe and kissed the ground. These ten men had accomplished something never done before. They'd been the first white men north of Mexico to leave the east coast of North America and reach the west coast. This is 12 years before Lewis and Clark would conduct their expedition. These men had conquered the Wild Peace River. On a side note, our dog was the first Newfie to have ever crossed the continent. I'm just saying. So what's a guy to do after he put that on his resume? Well, Alex seems to have hung out for a while at Fort Chippewayan, and this is where one of the greatest mysteries about the man develops. He was said to have fallen in love and taken a country wife, the woman being either an Inuit or a Métis named Kitty Brown. And a side note for those of you doing genealogy, the last name Brown occurs frequently in Canadian records, and according to one of Hudson's Bay Company's archivists, it's because the clerks would write a bit of Brown in the surname column of the record books if they were Métis. It referred to their skin color. And if you listen to the Métis episode, you'll remember I said that many of them have difficulty tracing their European ancestry because of the racial biases and stigmas, and no shortage of crap record-keeping. It seems that it was a what-happens-in-Canada-stays-in-Canada mentality, and white folks back east preferred not to acknowledge certain things that happened on the frontiers, particularly when it came to hooking up with natives. So keep that in mind while I explain this. It's likely Alex married Kitty in 1794, not long after his return. They had at least two children, a son named Andrew and a daughter named Maria, though in some documents she's listed as Julia. Records of their baptisms exist. When Andrew was a teenager, he worked as a clerk for Northwest Company in Fort Vermilion until he suddenly died in 1809, cause unknown. Maria was sent to live with Alex's sister Margaret in Scotland. And yet many historians say that this is all hogwash. It just so happens that Maria took Alex's family Bible back home with her and passed it down through the generations before the book was eventually donated to the Glengarry Norwesters and Loyalist Museum in the 1980s. Alex also later sent money to his cousin for Kitty's upkeep. So, besides starting his new family, he entered the politics of the fur trade, and he became embroiled in the drama that goes with it. During this time, he managed to tick off some of the big names in the fur trade. Alex felt he had a new status as a celebrity, and he wanted to be elevated in status in the fur trade itself. Not everyone was for it. So, Alex published his journals in 1801, raising his celebrity status even further. And then in 1802, he was knighted by King George III for his achievements in exploration. Now, remember those people he ticked off? It was about to come back and bite him in the butt. 
During this time, he pushed for a conglomeration of the corporate entities into something he called the Columbian Enterprise, and he appealed particularly for a company he called the Fishery and Fur Company, but his request for licensure was denied. He suggested combining those numerous individually managed trading posts into one stronger network. His suggestion was ignored. He appealed to the British government to create a military base at the Nootka Sound. That would support his idea of amalgamated fisheries and fur trades, but his request was denied. One request after another after another came up empty. By 1808, he had enough of all the drama, and he went home to Scotland. He married his first cousin, a 14-year-old named Geddes Mackenzie of Avoc. He was 48. I know that sounds awful, but this was the early 1800s, and it was completely acceptable to marry a first cousin. The age difference did cause a scandal, but when you're dealing with royalty and peerage, people don't really hold grudges, and with good reason. Alex now became the Laird of Avoc through his marriage to Geddes, and he instantly started improving the lives of the people around him. He built the first harbor in town, paying for half of it out of his own pocket. He built a new church and donated new bells to the existing churches. He laid down the oyster beds in Munlaki Bay to feed his people. But his health suffered greatly, probably from the trials endured during his exploration days. That swelling in his calves was likely caused by something called Bright's disease, which we today call nephritis, and he spent much of his last days consulting doctors about this ailment. It was on one such trip on March 11, 1820, that he suddenly died. He was only 58 years old. Geddes and their three children continued to live on at Avoc for the next 12 years. Then in 1832, a fire broke out in the home, and despite the incredibly heroic efforts of the townsfolk, most of the house and everything in it was lost. Years of Alex's documents, maps, equipment, and priceless journals, all gone. Thankfully, he'd published the journals from those two exploration years, or we would have no idea of what happened on that harrowing journey. His exploration achievements were monumental. His concepts of consolidating the economic aspects of the fur and fish trade were light years ahead of their time. And the fact that he wrote it all down... Well, that's just amazing. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed exploring the life of Alexander Mackenzie. Join us in a few weeks for another deep dive into the North American fur trade. Please check out the website at fursandfrontiers.com for links to more information on Sir Alexander Mackenzie, as well as other great resources for documents like journals and maps. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend and keep your powder dry. Thank you.